Hello and welcome to Fast Pass the Past, the Theme Park History Podcast, episode 16. Have you ever wondered what is the origin story behind your favorite attractions and theme parks? Well, you're in the right place. Today, we're talking about the humble origins of one of America's most prominent theme park chains, Universal Studios. And yes, once again, this early theme park even included a chicken lunch with your ticket price. Hello, theme park fans. I'm your host, Austin Carroll. I'm a history nerd and a former Disneyland cast member. Before we get started, let me just say thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. I'm so excited to travel to this ever-changing Hollywood film oasis with you all today, especially as we can't really go there physically right now. The lasting ramifications of Universal Studios Hollywood and the original theme park studio tour still reverberate across the theme park universe, pardon the pun, with theme parks around the world, including Disney's Hollywood Studios, still taking cues from what Universal Studios Hollywood was doing way back in 1915 when films didn't even have audio, much less audio animatronics. Since its humble beginnings, Universal Studios Hollywood has always been an enigma. This paradox of a fully functioning top Hollywood film intelligence studio that sits just feet away from one of the world's top theme parks could exist nowhere else but in the Hollywood Hills. The founder of Universal City, Carl Limley, envisioned a city dedicated to the movies. The studio tour, once simply a method of attracting audiences and publicity to Universal Films, transformed over time into a worldwide empire with revenues in the billions. While most early film studios are now mainly memories, Limley's Folly, as it was called, continues to grow in popularity, offering new generations of film lovers the chance to go behind the scenes of their favorite films. Without further ado, welcome to the world-famous Universal Studios Hollywood Studio Tour. Today, we are heading way back into the archives of Universal Pictures to discover how they came to own a mountainous crop of land smack dab in the middle of what would become the famed Hollywood Hills. Please keep your hands, arms, and feet inside the vehicle at all times, and watch out for rogue directors, movie stars, and ever-changing landscapes. Before Prohibition and the Great Depression rocked the country, even before Walter and Cordelia Knott started selling their fried chicken dinners at their berry farm in Bruna Park, Carl Limley was faced with a conundrum in March of 1912. Two years after leading a massive merger, his film production company desperately needed more land. This was altogether not an unpleasant problem for Carl Limley, an immigrant from Bavaria, Germany, who had become obsessed with motion pictures. Limley came to America in 1884 and opened a five-and-dime store over in Wisconsin. Years later, his life direction would change completely when he visited what was called at the time a Nickelodeon. No, not the TV channel, but a movie theater with an admission fee of one nickel. The magical flickering images sparked his imagination, and in 1906, he opened his first movie theater in Chicago, in a vacant building on Milwaukee Avenue. He painted the facade white, 
and the venue would become known as the White Front Theater. It was an immediate success, with lines around the block. However, the good times would not last long. In 1909, the New York-based Motion Pictures Patent Company, also known as MPPC, imposed a massive $2 license fee upon independent theaters operators like Limley. The MPPC was led by inventor Thomas Edison. Yes, that Thomas Edison. And they wanted to control the infant film industry, which was at their mercy given MPPC held the patent on motion picture cameras. Limley recognized that producing his own films would enable him to circumvent the hefty licensing fee and production regulations imposed by MPPC. Within a few months, he moved toward the enemy to New York City and started his own movie production company in 1909, somewhat hilariously called Independent Moving Pictures, IMP. His sense of humor and his true feelings about MPPC were on display when he adopted a playful impish demon as the logo for the studio. In the mid-1910, he oversaw a massive and unprecedented merger of several already established film production companies and actually emerged as its president. The merger gave them the name Motion Picture Distributing and Sales Company and provided the use of the Champion Film Company studio in Fort Lee, New Jersey which was the production capital of the world at the time. Still, it was New Jersey, so inclement weather and the MPC restrictions soon made New Jersey inhospitable. In 1910, MPPC even issued an injunction against Limley for the knockoff camera being used for their motion pictures, claiming that it was infringement on their patents. They later lost, but Limley, along with another handful of film producers, fled west to California IA. They were in search of the infamous California weather that allowed for year-round filming and a place to hide from MPPC's prying eyes. His company began production in Los Angeles in 1910. However, Limley didn't join them on the west coast until May of 1912 just a month before the cobbled together motion picture distributing and sales company collapsed. The assets of his original production company, Independent Moving Pictures, was transferred to the newly incorporated Universal Film Manufacturing Company. Little did they know, the Universal logo would be appearing on films for the next hundred years. Carl Limley was a rebel in every sense of the word. He founded Universal Pictures as part of his continuing campaign against the then-dominant film industry. To make his films, Lindley was willing to violate the law. He was personally sued 289 times for intellectual property violations. The mainstream film industry held all of the important patents on film equipment and sued anyone who dared make films without their permission. They litigated to try to weaken the threat from filmmakers like Limley, who were bringing to America radical ideas like the feature film, longer than 20 minutes, credit for actors, and other innovations such as the chase sequence. And so Universal was really born as a renegade studio, an outlaw, with radically different ideas of what film could be, and eventually what theme parks could be. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, 
the United States Supreme Court ruled against MPPC in 1912 and again in 1915. The court stated that the MPPC was in violation of the 1920 Sherman Antitrust Act. By 1917, the MPPC would cease to exist, but it was too late. The creative center of the industry had moved to Hollywood. However, all of that being said, Lindley was likely expecting a little bit more from this infamous Hollywood than what he found when he arrived in Los Angeles, a city no doubt in its infancy, which at the time in 1912 had about a population of 500,000 people. To solve his land problem, one of his first acts in Los Angeles was to buy the Nestor Company Studio at Sunset Boulevard and Gower Street. The studio was the first permanent motion picture studio in Hollywood, and it had developed a silly nickname. It was known around town as Gower Glutch, due to the actors dressed as cowboys and Indians waiting on the corner to be cast in its westerns. In fact, prior to being bought by Lumley and Universal, Nestor's staff had been successfully churning out three pictures a week from their humble studio which was actually a former tavern rented from the widow Mary Blondu with two film stages. Luckily, the building conveniently also offered spacious grounds, enabling several films to be shot simultaneously. Granted, motion pictures didn't yet have sound. When a script called for a more expansive location, Nestor's crew shot in the San Fernando Valley on land leased from the Provincia Land and Water Development Company. This was called the Oakcrest Ranch property. However, lugging equipment and personnel to on-location shoots required precious time and money. In order to increase efficiency and profits of his new acquisition, Longley decided to build the world's first city dedicated entirely to making movies. And hence, the idea for Universal Studios Hollywood was born. Linley went about setting up makeshift stages on the Oakcrest Ranch property, and the production of Western films began on the site in 1912. On December 6, 1912, an informal studio opening was held. The public was invited to tour the ranch and watch a Bison Pictures cowboy and Indian battle. In an attempt to generate some publicity, Linley dubbed the Oakcrest Ranch property Universal City on July 10, 1913. In August of the year, he actually invited 50 Indians, real live Indians, along with 100 horses from a reservation near Albuquerque, New Mexico, to move in permanently at Universal City. This group of Native Americans performed in his films and lived on the new property in teepees. He began to attract visitors with bus excursions from downtown Los Angeles in September of that year. However, shortly thereafter, Limley decided the Oakcrest Ranch location was actually too small for him to consolidate all of the West Coast operations and build his film city. In March 1914, Limley bought a 230-acre chicken farm known as the Taylor Ranch from the Lakshim Land Water Development Company for only $165,000 and started construction on his so-called film city. When Limley saw the ranch property for the first time, his car got stuck in the mud and he had to be pulled out by Jumbo, an elephant that was working on the film at the time. You can believe it. 
His colleagues made fun of him and often referred to the buying of the chicken farm as Lindley's folly. Despite this, the burgeoning movie mogul hired hundreds of construction workers to realize his vision for what would come to be called Universal City. on his other acquired grounds in the San Fernando Valley, Lindley continued to construct and install numerous sets and stages, as well as a bank, horse corral, cafe, post office, school, and zoo, investing $1 million in studio facilities. He also relocated several small buildings, including the tavern from Grower Studios and the other buildings from the Oakcrest Ranch property. In 1915, always the showman, Limley arranged for a special Santa Fe train to leave Chicago on March 7, 1915, and head towards Universal City. Limley spent eight days on the Transcontinental Railroad traveling from Chicago to Los Angeles to drum up publicity for the official grand opening of his Universal City. The ceremonies were set for March 15th. When the train arrived, more than 20,000 people were waiting. Special guests include Buffalo Bill Cody. To celebrate his creation, now the largest film production facility in the world, Limley arranged for two days of festivals that included a parade and, in a bizarre foreshadowing of things to come, a Western stunt show, the demolition of a bridge, and a simulated flash flood, three attractions that would later become fixtures of the early Universal Studios tour. Thousands of spectators cheered the breathtaking spectacles on the first day. A studio press release proclaimed, they are to witness the opening of the first municipality, the first city or community to be devoted exclusively to the manufacture of motion pictures. This city, this universal city, of which the picture world has talked about for months, is the realization of a dream by Carl Limley, not more than 10 years ago. Miss Laura Oakley, chief of the Universal City Police, handed Limley a gold key. Limley remarked, I hope I didn't make a mistake coming out here. Just in case, the chicken ranch on site remained operational. However, the excitement came to a tragic end on day two of opening, when a hired aircraft suffered a weather-related crash, killing the stunt pilot. Though in the aftermath, Limley dispersed the crowds and closed the studio to the public, he still retained the notion of inviting people into his movie city. Despite the threats, Universal survived and prospered. Along with 20th Century Fox and Paramount, Universal was one of the most important outlaw film studios in the early history of film, a decisive force in making Hollywood the center of American movies and in making the United States a center of world cinema. Soon, Limley reopened Universal City to anyone with 25 cents for a mission. With their 25 cents, they could watch the live performances of their favorite film stars, encouraging audience to cheer the heroes and boo the villains as the actors mugged for the cameras. For another nickel, they would even get a boxed chicken lunch to eat from the cafe. Between takes, patrons could wander around the stages, collect autographs, and even visit the zoo. 
Unlike many other towns, Universal City was home to one of the world's largest zoos, filled with 30 lions, 10 leopards, elephants, monkeys, and horses. Nearby was everything necessary to make movies, including 80 dressing rooms, some which are still standing, a mill, shops, a forage, greenhouses, and even company offices, which even had electric lights and running water. There were two restaurants and two outdoor stages, with muslin screens strung overhead to diffuse the California sunlight. The largest soundstage included a revolving stage and a rocking stage. The floor could be removed and underneath were water tanks that could be combined to appear as a lake. Like any municipality, there was a police department, a fire brigade, library, a school, and a hospital. All of these buildings in a city were designed so they could be redressed quickly to stimulate any type of environment the film required. One day, a building may be a Greek temple, and the next a Victorian home. From 1915 to 1916, there were 250 pictures produced at Universal City in just the first year. The studio was such a smashing success that Lindley's rival, Thomas A. Edison, visited on October 27, 1915, which was probably pretty awkward. The tour remained popular for over a decade. Then, with the advent of sound recording, which required a quiet set, people couldn't necessarily be sitting in bleachers and booing, the grandstands were removed around 1930, and visitors were no longer welcome on the studio lot. Hence, the first version of Universal Studios' famous studio tour was put to an end for nearly three decades. Uncle Carl, a nickname he received because he had so many relatives on the payroll, passed away on September 24, 1939, well before the studio was reopened to the public. However, his dream of a city dedicated to the filmmaking arts and open to the public would live well into the 21st century. By the time Universal reopened to the public three decades later in 1961, the Music Corporation of America, or MCA, had taken over the ownership of Universal Pictures. In creating a public tour, they actually first simply outsourced the tours to the Grey Line Bus Company, the same company that provided tours of the homes of Hollywood stars. The studio charged the bus companies a small fee, and also benefited from the extra lunches they could sell to the tourists in the studio commissary. The bus drivers were given a hand-typed script to read that highlighted the studio facilities as well as hyped upcoming Universal releases. However, MCA soon began to look for a way to revive the old studio tour as part of a new image for Universal City Studios. In 1963, legendary movie mogul Lou Wasserman, then president of MCA Universal, asked Vice President Al Dorskind to look into the feasibility of creating a permanent tour. He in turn hired Buzz Price to conduct a feasibility study, the same man who helped determine the location for Disneyland and Walt Disney World. The results must have been positive because Universal decided to start its own tram tours of its facilities. The resulting glamour trams, as they were called, were candy-striped and designed by Hollywood art director Harper Goff, made famous by 2000 Leads Under the Sea and Willy Wonka. General manager Barry Upson from Seattle's World Fair and designers Randall Duell and Bud Dardeen rounded out the team. 
Together, they worked out on the transportation, entertainment, and logistics for the route, while also preparing for the future tour center. Shortly before opening in 1964, the guys invited the Universal Secretaries on a special test run. Unfortunately, it was the first test run of the Glamour trams, and the tram broke down halfway through a remote section of the back lot. The poor secretaries had to walk all the way back to their offices on the front lot. Despite the setback, the studio tour opened on June 17, 1964, with tickets being sold out of a temporary trailer on Langstrom Boulevard. The original 90-minute studio tour cost $2.50 to ride, a far cry from the current $100 plus that it costs today. Visitors rode on two pink and white striped glamour trams around the studio's back lot, with stops to see a collection of costumes designed by Edith Head, a makeup demonstration presented by Mike Westmore of the famous Westmore family of makeup artists, a walk through Star's dressing room, a Western stunt show, and the big moneymaker for Universal to buy themselves lunch at the studio commissary. It was a major success. Over 38,000 guests rode the Universal Studio Tour in its first year. The next year, the Studio Tour entrance moved to the park's current entrance on the upper lot of Universal City, and Universal built an arena for the Western Stunt Show. It opened, the whole kind of park opened with a very lean staff. Just a couple of tram drivers, another couple of tour guides, a ticket seller, and contracted stuntman for the show. In fact, the initial tour guides of the studio tour were folks Universal Studios Hollywood found working at the studio, or relatives of famous people. One of the first tour guides was a guy named John Bannum, who was famous for directing Saturday Night Fever in War Games. He got his start as a studio tour guide back in the 60s. To keep labor costs down while adding more entertainment for visitors, Universal started using audience volunteers to play roles in various scenes throughout the tour. That became a tradition of audience inter interactivity that eventually spread not just to other Universal theme parks, but to parks run by Disney, SeaWorld, and others as well. As is the nature of a fully operational Hollywood studio, filming schedules forced Universal to change the tram's tour route through the backlot on almost a daily basis an operational consideration that continues to this day. To keep the entertainment value on the tour, even on days when filming closed much of the back lot, and to compete with Disneyland, MCA Universal began adding fixed attractions during the tour. The first expansion to the tour was the Prop Plaza, an intermediate rest stop that included the tour's first animation, basically a Model T Ford that was rotating with a backdrop that was also rotating. Prop Plaza was also the site of the first version of the Western Stunt Show. However, in 1968, the Screen Actors Guild enacted a rule prohibiting visitors from most sound stages. This new rule, coupled with more productions being shot on location, meant the backlot tour tram could not show visitors much in the way of real movie and television production. Jay Stein, president of the Recreational Division, championed the idea of creating exciting experiences for visitors in place of viewing actual production. Later that same year, the Flash Flood set was opened, and this first special effects attraction proved to be a hit. 
20,000 gallons of water rushed 200 feet down a narrow Mexican village street and threatening to engulf the tram. Yes, and this attraction is still there today. Later, the parting of the Red Sea from the Ten Commandments was added in 1973, the collapsing bridge in 1974, and the ice tunnel in 1975. Today, that special effects tunnel at the end of the tour is themed to King Kong. This will cost MCA a cool $4 million. It also required them to invest in an additional fleet of trams, additional dining location, parking lots, and other necessary facilities. Most interestingly, Al Dorkind actually made a deal with California Transport, or Caltrans, to remove the top of the large hill on the Universal property for a new tour center. Caltrans actually used the dirt in the construction of the nearby Hollywood Freeway, or the 101. This tour center eventually became the top deck of the Universal Studios theme park that we all know today. By the 1970s, MCA was spending millions more on updates to the studio tour, including a spectacular rockside display and the Jaws experience, added in 1976. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Based on the Steven Spielberg breakout hit from the previous year, Jaws recreated the village of Amity from the movie, with a 25-foot animatronic shark emerging from the water to attack the tram. An immediate hit, Jaws created the template for future big-budget, dedicated studio tour attractions based on enduring Universal films. However, many of the early tour attractions did not stand the test of time and have been replaced over the years to make way for new expansions. Theme park aficionados will fondly recall such quirky attractions as the submarine attack, the avalanche, the runaway train, the burning house, the ice tunnel, Battle of Galactica, and perhaps the strangest of all, a mechanical gorilla holding a severed human arm that used to swing through Tarzan's jungle. In 1986, Universal added an even bigger attraction, installing the King Kong Encounter in a 26,000 square foot New York themed soundstage. Studios tour, and this time he wins. The Kong animatronic, the largest in the world at that time, was built by Bob Gurr, who also created most of the ride vehicles for Disneyland. Kong weighed in at seven tons, measured over 30 feet tall, and was covered in 660 pounds of fur, and he also had a bad case of banana breath. He was modeled after the star of Dino De Laurentiis' 1976 movie version. He was the largest and most complex animatronic in existence for many years. The attraction broke new ground and paved the way for complex themed attractions of today, and was the inspiration behind the former confrontation attraction at Universal Studios Florida. Unfortunately, he was completely destroyed by some of the massive fires that have plagued Universal Studios Hollywood since opening. King Kong was destroyed in a particularly nasty one on the early morning of June 1st, 2008 that took place and engulfed the back lot. In 2010, the entire King Kong encounter attraction was replaced with King Kong 360 3D. In 1988, Universal added its third iconic studio tour attraction, Earthquake, the big one, another themed soundstage where the tram shook and bobbed during a stimulated 8.3 San Francisco earthquake. 
The next year, Universal Studios Hollywood had a record year for attendance, with visitors increasing by 21%, which is in part due to the runaway success of the earthquake attraction. Of course, the biggest and most unpredictable attraction of the studio tour has always been the prospect of seeing a movie star. Since its inception, the studio tour has strived to get guests as close to the filmmaking as possible. This necessitates daily, sometimes hourly, changes to the tour route. Over the years, the tram has had some rather unique encounters with Hollywood stars, including a head-on collision with John Travolta's Rolls Royce, uh, apparently he was a pretty good sport about it, and signed autographs and posed for pictures with the surprised and startled guests, and being terrorized by a rubber knife-wielding Mother Bates at the Psycho House, which was actually just Jim Carrey in disguise. In the summer of 2000, Universal brought the tram into the 21st century with the debut of the new studio tour with the inclusion of LCD video monitors, a state-of-the-art audio system, onboard video cameras, and DVD players containing over 200 pieces of custom-produced media. For the first time ever, guests were able to see examples of how the Universal lot has been used for motion pictures and television production. It's now hosted by Jimmy Fallon of The Tonight Show. Okay, listen, I know what you're thinking. Where did the theme park come in? I've just been talking about a studio tour. Well, at Universal Studios Hollywood, the theme park really evolved around Universal's long-standing production lot. Constrained between production facilities that are actually really being used and an unforgiving mountain geography, Universal Studios Hollywood lacks the hub and spoke or central lagoon design that defines so many other theme parks. It meanders around a mountaintop, with a second level below, accessible via a series of pretty massive escalators. At first, Universal simply added new attractions to the upper lot over the years to complement the studio tour, continuing the park's evolution from tour to full-day theme park. Ma and Pa Kettle Farm, also known as Ark Park, was introduced in 1967 and featured animals that were used in many Universal productions, kind of an evolution of the old zoo. Visitors could stroll at their leisure to pet and feed the animals. Starting in 1970, there were also regularly scheduled shows under the direction of Ray Berwick, famed animal trainer best known for training the hundreds of birds for Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds on the newly constructed Animal Actors School stage. In 1972, Universal actually played host to concerts the amphitheater opened as an outdoor daytime arena for the tour's stunt show. But as the venue was idle after sundown, a young tour employee apparently suggested holding rock concerts in the arena after the stuntman had gone home. The first musical performance was the Los Angeles premiere of Jesus Christ Superstar on June 28, 1972. The new amphitheater's musical events proved instantly attractive and soon, the Universal Amphitheater became the favorite showcase of the world's leading concert performers. A roof was later added, and it remained a Universal City fixture until September of 2013, when it was actually torn down in preparation for The Wizarding World of Harry Potter, which debuted on the upper lot in 2016. Just three years after the amphitheater was built in 1975, following the success of Smaller Makeup Show on the studio tour, a 1,500-seat outdoor arena was prepared for the much grander The Land of a Thousand Faces show. 
After its four-year run, an even more elaborate makeup and special effects show was planned for the theater. Universal quickly constructed a roof for the theater and staged a spooky Castle Dracula stage show featuring Universal's classic monsters in 1980. Throughout the years, the Castle Theater has seen movie-themed live productions come and go, including Fear Factor Live, Beetlejuice Graveyard Review, and currently hosts the special effects stage show. Finally, in 1991 is where the escalators come in. Universal Studios Hollywood expanded onto what we could now call the lower lot, with the opening of a quarter-mile series of escalators connecting the top and bottom of the mountain upon which Universal Studios was built. In 1991, E.T. Adventure opened as the park's first dark ride, before being replaced by the Minge of the Mummy in 2003. E.T. Adventure can still be experienced at Universal Orlando in Florida. Today, the lower lot is home to the Jurassic Park, or I guess Jurassic World now, River Adventure, Revenge of the Mummy, and Transformers the Ride 3D. In 1993, the first high-technology thrill ride opened, positioned at the edge of the upper lot. The simulator-driven Back to the Future, The Ride, based on the 1985 film. Later, this was replaced with The Simpsons Ride, so you can see that Universal Studios Hollywood is always evolving, always innovating, always improving. When it's time to make room for a new amazement, saying goodbye to old favorites is never easy. However, Universal Studios Hollywood is perhaps the only theme park in the world where saying goodbye is a given and not a possibility. In the last 55 years, with well over 50 theme park attractions have been shuttered to make way for new attractions, like Despicable Me Minion Mayhem, The Walking Dead attraction, and The Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Despite the constant evolution, you can still experience elements of the original Universal and the 1960s version of the studio tour. On the world-famous studio tour, look out for the following original elements. The Flash Flood set, which we talked about. The first special effects sequence was created in 1968, and it still holds a place on the studio tour today. Also, when you're on the tour, look out for those production bundalos. Many of these bundalos were built in the 1940s to the 1960s. These would have been the star dressing rooms you would have toured on the 1964 version of the Universal Studio Tour. Throughout the 1960s, they were home away from home dressing rooms for stars like Alfred Hitchcock, Doris Day, and Lucille Ball. Although they have been converted into production offices and you no longer get to walk through them, they are still usually present on the studio tour. On the tour, you will also take a stop in the Wild West Town, also known as Denver Street. Although the original Denver Street would have been present when the studio tour opened in 1964, a fire destroyed much of it, and a replica was built in 1967. These sets actually even look similar to what you would encountered in 1915, when you paid your 25 cents to watch your favorite westerns being filmed. However, these original sets were, would have been in a different location on the front lot. You'll also pass by Falls Lake, which was first constructed in 1926 for the early Universal classic Uncle Tom's Cabin, and was named after a massive waterfall flowing down the fake cliffs. Even though it's often really kind of covered up for filming, Falls Lake is still also usually part of the studio tour. And on the tour, you'll also see Little Europe, Although Little Europe set dates back to the 1920s, 
The current sets were built in 1967 as replicas of the old sets, following that same devastating fire in that year which destroyed Denver Street. You would have seen these sets on the original studio tour as well. If you haven't seen Universal Studios Hollywood lately, take another look. So much has changed, you may not recognize it. Lasting ramifications of Universal Studios Hollywood and the original theme park studio tour still reverberate across the industry, with theme parks around the world, including Disney's Hollywood Studios and Disney's Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris, not to mention the Universal Parks in Japan, Florida, and soon to be China, still taking cues from what Universal Studios Hollywood was doing way back in 1915. The creation of the Jaws Experience, addition to the studio tour in 1976, set the level for audio and animatronic engineering in the theme park industry. And not only did it create the template for future big budget dedicated studio tour attractions, it was the inspiration for the former Jaws attraction in Universal Studios Florida, and it also started a pattern of MCA executives thinking bigger. In the early 1980s, MCA Universal executives devised a plan to expand their studio tour concept to Florida. The Florida tour was to be of a similar to the Hollywood version and would be built around a brand new working production facility. The plans called for a front lot walking tour, as well as a tram tour for the studio's back lot. Later in 1986, the great success Universal Studios Hollywood experienced in that first year following the King Kong Encounters addition to the studio tour convinced management to move the Florida idea forward. It was the largest and most complex animatronic figure in existence for many years, but it also paved the way for complex theme park attractions of today. This will come as no surprise to our listeners, but in December of 1986, MCA announced that they would be an equal partner It would what now would be known as Universal Studios Florida. If you want to learn more about the creation of Universal's Florida theme park, check out our previous podcast episodes 5 and 6. I really hope you enjoy this look back into the legacy of Universal Studios Hollywood, a theme park that is synonymous with film history and the history of Los Angeles. Who's to think that all of this is due to a rebel filmmaker who had a dream of creating a city dedicated to the movies, where there was no rules, no licensing fees, or time spent moving equipment to far away on location sets. Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support of Fast Pass of the Past. I know I don't deserve it. I don't release episodes that frequently, but I really appreciate all of your comments on Facebook and also your email messages of support. And thank you also to Universal Studios Hollywood for inviting me to take a spin on the world-famous studio tour last year. Make sure you email me at fastpasstothepast at gmail.com if you have show ideas, disagree with anything I said, or just want to say hi during this period of social isolation, I love that. You can also message me on Facebook if that's easier. You can find the show notes at www.themeparkhistorypodcast.com. And if you enjoyed the show and you want me to make more episodes, maybe more even, can't promise, but maybe on a more consistent basis, Please leave an iTunes review if you enjoyed the podcast and you want to learn more. Thank you so much again for your continued support, and I hope to have future episodes out on a more regular schedule. Stay tuned on my Facebook for more information on that. Have a magical day!